Chapter Six of Esther Reed's Namesake. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Esther Reed's Namesake by Pansy. Chapter Six: The Victors. Dearly beloveds, oh, mommy, mommy, I have been bad again, so bad that I could almost want you not to tell a word of it to the poor dear father. Only, of course, he must know the whole wicked story to its bitter end, and this letter is, as always, for you both. You want to understand, though, that I had great provocation. I'll begin with excuses, as naughty children always do. They are simply dreadful, these victors, about piling up the work and having dinner late, and expecting me to crowd it all in, the work, not the dinner. I've done it a good many times, not in my hours, though, by any means, but on Saturday I made a solemn resolution not to do it again. It was really a promise, father. And you wouldn't have me break a promise, I should hope. But I tried with all my might to get the work done. I did honestly. I took no time even to eat. But there had been company to luncheon, and when I came on duty at five, all the cooking dishes and most of the others stood around in sticky heaps in the way. Dinner was late, of course, but even then they were not ready for it. When the clock struck eight, there was never a worse-looking kitchen and pantry imagined. Mother, if you should put every dish and kettle and pan that we have in the world in the middle of the floor, it wouldn't begin to describe the scene. If these victors had any more dishes that could be used in getting luncheon, they would use them. Oh, to be sure, I had washed some of them, piles and piles indeed, but the stickiest ones and the dried-uppest ones were still waiting. It never occurs to Miss Catherine to put any dish to soak. And she made an unusually messy mess for a salad, and I think used a fresh dish for each egg and raisin and bread crumb. Oh, don't let me undertake to describe the scene. Words fail. I left it. I did, mommy and father. Your daughter Esther Reed Randall, in spite of her honored name and the hopes and aspiration which it inspires, did just that. I went to my books to try to get ready for this morning. There was an unusually hard lesson to prepare, but wickedness, as usual, met its own reward. Flowery bowls and oily plates and dried-on skillets danced before my eyes, and unwashed muffin tins spread themselves over each page. And at last I went to bed in despair. But I dreamed that I tipped over the range and scattered the burning coals all over the dining table. Have I told you that I am not this term on duty on Sunday morning? Mrs. Victor prefers to have me give the four hours in succession in the afternoon, so I can get the dinner without help and do up the work while the family sleep. So I did not have to go down to that awful kitchen, and I hope you understand that I had the grace to go without any breakfast. I waited until all the family were supposed to have gone to church, and it was time for me to begin preparations for dinner. But I found Mrs. Victor at work in the kitchen. Mommy, I meant to be meekness itself, but her very first words roiled me. You didn't go to church, I said civilly, an idiotic thing to say. I will admit, because of course she knew it without my telling her. No, she said very stiffly. I could hardly venture on that, since I did not know what to expect. From the appearance of things here this morning, I supposed that at the very least you had been taken suddenly ill or been called away at a moment's warning. Why did that vex me? I don't think I can explain the why, but it did. 
Still, I resisted the temptation to compliment her on her humanity in supposing that I might have been taken suddenly ill, and yet leaving me to my own distress all the morning, and only remarked coldly that I did not understand why she should not have expected me at the appointed hour, as usual, since I believed that I had never yet been five minutes late. Then I added that I had worked up to the full limit of my time the night before, without stopping even to eat my dinner, and got just as much of the extra work done as I possibly could, but that my college duties simply would not admit of my giving any more time to housework. I thought that would remind her of the number of extra hours that I had already given, and that she would say they ought not to expect that, or some other mollifying thing, and I was prepared to meet her more than halfway. But she wouldn't come a step. She acted precisely as though it was I who failed in my contract. Then she said a horrid thing. After sighing like an ill-used person, she said resignedly that of course there was no use in talking over such matters. She had probably expected too much. She would admit that, having understood that I was the daughter of a minister, she had fancied that they would not be held by me to hard and fast rules, and that if, once in a while, they needed a few minutes more of service, I would be willing to accommodate them, just as she certainly would try to accommodate me if I needed at any time to be excused. Now, mother, wasn't that exasperating talk? Once in a while, indeed, when she knows perfectly well that nine times out of ten they have dinner so late that I cannot get to my room until nine o'clock at least, and I am often later than that. Then the idea of lugging in the fact that I am a minister's daughter. What had that to do with it, pray? And yet, poor father, I know while I write that it does have something to do with it, and that if Mrs. Victor knew what a good, good minister I have for a father, matters would have been worse yet. We said a good deal more, both of us. She vexed me so that I told her frankly, what I had made up my mind not to mention just then, that her work kept me in the kitchen until after nine o'clock, five nights out of six. Then she said that I must be terribly slow. She was sure that either of her daughters could do the dinner dishes quicker than that, and they had not been brought up to work in the kitchen either. Then I said that I had been brought up to do whatever I had to do as well and as quickly as I could, and that ever since I had been with her I had tried to do my best, but that, if I did not suit her, she was under no obligation to keep me until the close of the year, and that if she wished it I would go away at once. Now poor dear little mother and my long-suffering troubled father don't look too sorrowfully at each other over that. I know I was mean, I confess it. Yes, ma'am, I am dreadfully ashamed of myself, and have been all day. Because, you see, I had the advantage of her, and knew it. I am a pretty fair cook, and a reasonably fast worker. You know I am, mommy dear, so what's the use of our trying to hide it? Besides, it is all owing to the training you gave me. And help here is very scarce indeed. There are more people looking for college girls to work in their kitchens, than there are girls to go around, a great deal. Mrs. Victor knew, and I knew, that I had only to announce myself as unemployed, to have dozens of opportunities. Why, mother, I know a lovely home, just such as I would like to be in, that would clap its hands for joy if I should go over there this evening, and say that I had come to stay. Yes, um, I know that it made it all the meaner. Please don't tell me so, for I feel it away down to my shoes. Do let me hurry to say the next thing. 
I had really no intention, not the slightest, of leaving Mrs. Victor. Much as I should like to do so, unless she sent me away, which I knew was extremely improbable. I just felt a mean little desire to remind her that it wasn't necessary for her to sacrifice herself in order to keep her contract with me. I had my reward, too, such as it was. She looked simply scared over my words, and made all haste to tell me that of course she did not wish me to go, had not thought of my doing such a thing. She always tried to keep her word, and she knew I was a girl who did the same. In fact, she should not think of sending me away, even though I did not suit her at all, after I had made all my arrangements to stay with her through the college year. She hoped she understood her duty better than that. Now, Mommy, dear, could I let her pat herself in that way about doing her duty? I don't think it would have been in human nature to take such a remark in silence. At least it wasn't in my nature. I reminded her that it had been distinctly stipulated when our engagement was made that it was to continue through the year only on the ground that both parties were satisfied to have it so, and that I had no right and no desire to hold her a moment beyond her wishes. That was meanness spelled all in capitals. I know it, Father. You needn't say a word. She was at my mercy. She has neither time nor strength to add my four hours of honest service to all her other work, and her daughters are too much engrossed with music and art and society to help her. Mommy, she began to be very nice to me, not because she felt one bit like it, but because she thought she must in order to keep me and I never felt so humiliated in my life. Well, we patched up a sort of peace. She made some wild promises about being punctual in future, which she cannot keep, poor thing. It isn't she who is unpunctual. Then she went away at last and left me. And I made the table look beautiful, and got as nice a dinner as I could, and they were every one prompt to the minute, and had only two unexpected guests and Miss Marion dried all the silver and glass and wanted to help with the other dishes, and I wouldn't let her. And all the time I felt small and mean, and they felt indignant. I was the subject of conversation throughout that dinner, despite the guests. They are very much at home here, and family matters are discussed freely before them. I felt it in the air and in the sibilant warning hush of Mrs. Victor when she heard me coming, and because they were indignant and talked too loud, I could not help overhearing some things, despite their sudden silences. Things that hurt. For instance, this. Ministers' daughters are no better than other people's daughters, so far as I can see. Mrs. Gleason says this one's father is an excellent man. I hope she doesn't inherit her temper from him. Then Miss Catherine offered a suggestion. This girl is a member of the church and a very regular attendant at Bible class which remark set the son of the house into a burst of laughter, and he said, Kathy, what on earth has that to do with the subject under discussion? Is there any connection between Bible class and temper in the kitchen? Why, I don't know, said Miss Catherine. Don't people profess that Bible study and all that sort of thing helps them to be unselfish and good-natured? Whether or not the young man was made to see the connection, I shall never know for at that point my troublesome conscience compelled me to rattle the dishes so that I could hear no more. But oh, how ashamed I felt, my poor father having to be dragged into disrepute again on account of his unworthy daughter. Mommy, I longed, just longed, to rush in there and say, You are right, ministers' daughters are not what they should be, at least not all are, 
but it isn't father's fault. If I were like him, no amount of selfishness and exaction on your part could swerve me one hair's breadth from the straight white line of beautiful living. But the trouble is that though my blessed father and mother did their best for me, I am not one bit like either of them. I am just my miserable, hateful self. Seriously, dear mother, and even more seriously, dear father, I am bowed to the dust over the thought that has somehow come to me with new force today, that people are judging of my father and mother by what they see in me. Isn't that awful? I, with such exhibits of fallen human nature as I know how to make, to be credited to you. Mother dear, I shall try harder, I really think I shall, though at this moment I don't see how flesh and blood could do more trying than I have already done. But with your reputation at stake, it seems as though I must learn to control my volcanic temper. Oh, that one little corner of the real Esther Reed's mantle could have fallen upon miserable me. At the same time I want to be strictly just, even to myself, and I think you ought to be told that the victors are, every last one of them, aggravoking. Other people besides me have discovered this. The college girls who are doing the same kind of work in other homes all commiserate me. No, sir, I do not talk over the victors with the girls. Now, father, I am ashamed of you for thinking that a daughter of yours could stoop so low as that. I don't open my lips about the family I live with, of course. But one of the girls, when she heard where I was living, shrugged her shoulders and said, Oh, you poor child! And the others laughed significantly. Then occasionally I am asked if I am still with the victors, and great astonishment is expressed. Now, Mommy, don't think dreadful things. The family is eminently respectable, I assure you, but they think that their rooms and their board are worth a great deal, and they mean to get their money's worth out of any person whom they honor by allowing her to live with them. The deep-down trouble is that they are poor and want to dress and eat and act as though they were rich. That is what I believe. The more I think of it, the more sure I feel that most of the meannesses of this world can be laid at the door of poverty. Now even I could be angelic most of the time, I think, if I had all the money I wanted to lavish on myself and my best beloveds. Still, you say Esther Reed was poor. Why, her family even kept boarders, didn't they? Ugh! Mother dear, I have reformed, really and truly, so far as the victors are concerned. I shall not rebel again if they don't get ready for dinner until the next morning. Please don't think I am making light of my sins, and please do know that I am sorry and ashamed. I am going to bed now. Your loving, horrid, repentant, homesick daughter, Esther Reed Randall. P.S. Professor Langham has invited me to attend the next recital. That is supposed to be an honor not often attained to by college girls, especially by mere sophomores. If it were not for the victors and a few other, well, things, I should feel quite sought up. How is poor Joram prospering? Is Aunt Sarah reconciled yet? I don't believe there is a line in this letter that can be read to her. Oh, Mommy, Mommy, I love you. As for father, I... Oh, he knows all about it. Kiss me, both of you, this minute. Now I'm gone to bed. Esther. They laughed a little, the father and mother, over this letter as they read it together in the privacy of the study, after Aunt Sarah had retired. Every line of it was so characteristically Esther that they could not but laugh. Yet there was room for seriousness and for indignation. 
It really seems too bad, said the usually patient mother, that she should have to be so tried by the careless and selfish habits of others. It is hard enough for the child to have to spend any of her time in doing housework. It seems as though she might at least have gone into a home that could appreciate her. The father's thoughts ran in another channel. She is jealous for the honor of father and mother, he said, and even for the stranger for whom she was named. But does she remember that other one whose name she also bears, and who must be honored or dishonored according as she presents his character to the world? It was this thought and the talk that followed it which led her mother in her next letter to Esther to say, If I had another daughter to name, I think I should call her honor. Wouldn't it help her, perhaps, to keep in mind not only the honor of the family name, but of that other greater name? Honor Randall, should you have liked it, dear? End of chapter 6 Recording by Tricia G.